Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good Sunday afternoon to everyone. It is Sunday, December the 19th, 2021. It is currently 3.17 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here in Ovalo, Texas. We're outside right now. It's 47 degrees. It's overcast. It's chilly. I will say it's cold outside, but inside here in the sanctuary, I've cranked up the heat. There's no one else here, so I've turned up the heat. So slowly but surely, it's starting to warm up here in the sanctuary, and I have right here next to me a copy of The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, and we're going to return to our study of this book that's been going on now for well over a year, and I think maybe once again, considering what's going on in our culture, it's going to be a a great time to pick up a copy of this book. If you have not been with us for the entire study, you may want to start it over because I think this is a perfect time. Let me explain why this all started. Some of you remember, some of you do not. At At the very beginning of the pandemic, It became very clear that this is going to become a big issue. People are going to be yelling, debating. There's going to be conspiracy theories. Everyone's going to be accusing the other one. People are going to say it's real. It's fake. It's dangerous. It's not dangerous. Wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. Social distancing. We're not going to follow the rules. And while all of that noise was going on, I thought it would be a perfect time for the church to really spend some time on the things of God, focusing on scripture, looking at our own spiritual lives, repenting, confessing, growing spiritually, meditating on on spiritual things. And I thought that I would put the book out there, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, as a great thing to to, that everyone would have access to because you can find copies of the book for free and that people could start reading it, thinking about it, meditating on it. And it, and it, in a sense, would be used to keep you from all of the noise within the culture. Now, sadly, a large number of people didn't want to pay attention to the imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, and they wanted to yell and scream and fight about all the things going on in culture. And I think overall, that's one of the big issues that the church The church got caught up in all of that instead of saying, what can we do in this season, not only to be, to show love to our neighbors, to our enemies, but to really grow spiritually? How can we use this situation so that we, when we come out of it, we come out more committed to Christ? We come out, you know, in a sense, closer to God, that our relationship to God had grown even closer, that the church comes out of the situation better off spiritually, but the church got so caught up in all of the noise. But right now with everything going on with Omicron and uh, Omicron and all of the things happening and there's shutdowns happening again and some schools going back to virtual learning and there's all kinds of concerns. Again, I'm not here to debate you about what you think about all of it. The issue is all of it's happening again So what can you do as a Christian to grow spiritually? What can you do during this season to evangelize? What can you do during this season to disciple? What can you do in this season spiritually? Or you can just spend all of your time yelling and fighting about everything going on in the culture. So because really, in some ways, it feels like the beginning of 2020 all over again, especially looking at some of the news headlines this morning, uh, since it feels like we're right at the beginning of 2020, well, 
then it's a perfect time once again to grab a copy of The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis and read and think and discuss and talk about it. Now, let me make it very clear. We don't agree with all of the theology of Thomas Kempis. No, by no means do I agree with the theology of Thomas Kempis. The, the reason that we have, one of the reasons we chose this book, uh, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis, is this, is this book, even though it comes from clearly a Catholic perspective, the book has been massively influential in all different forms of, of Protestant theology, all different streams of Protestant theology. As I've said a million times, I, I was introduced to this book in an independent fundamental Baptist church. Clearly, they were opposed to Catholicism. Now, either they didn't understand the history of the book or the history of Thomas Kempis, but the book has been around. So I think it, it serves as at least a good starting point to consider what Thomas Kempis had to say and then meditate and think about these, these subjects and these issues that he discussed from a biblical perspective which then you, you take the topic and then you go spend some time thinking about what scriptures have to say about it. So I think it's very beneficial and I think it could be very needed again right now considering everything going on in the culture. Now, I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you're listening live. If it's cold outside, maybe you have a, a fire going on in the fireplace. Grab your copy of The Imitation of Christ. Get something to drink. Grab a journal, a pencil, and just sit back and let's work through this very important book, considering how influential it's been in church history, and let's see what we can learn today. All right, does that, I hope that makes sense, and I hope everyone understands what I've been trying to do during the pandemic, is trying to get us to really like, okay, Lord, this is a horrible situation. What can we do spiritually to glorify you, to honor you, and administer to other people. And not only that, that, that we can use this as a sanctifying, a purifying period of time so that we can grow spiritually and maybe sp spend some time really looking at what's been going on in our lives spiritually. That's what I, I was hoping to accomplish. I think many, I think most got caught up in everything else. Uh, but before, so here's where we are. We are in book two. I could go on and talk about all of that forever, but we're in book two, chapter three. Remember the, the, the uh, Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis is broken down basically into four books. We're in book two, chapter three, a good, peaceable man. A good, peaceable man. And before we, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back and read everything that we covered in part one, uh, covering this chapter, and then we will advance it. But before we do that, let me read from an email that I received from someone who was listening. And I thought that this was, I just, I like the honesty here. I, I like the willingness to acknowledge something. And, and I think it's just, it, it should challenge all of us to be more open and honest with where we are spiritually. Uh, this person writes, also, I listened to your podcast on a peaceable man and couldn't help but feel far from what he says we are to be. Anyone who knows me on a surface level would probably see peace, but those that know me the best, like my husband, know that I'm constantly questioning, condemning myself, trying to improve, etc. I don't think I'll ever be at peace with myself until I'm dead. I'm not trying to be dramatic, but I am a cheerful person and I enjoy my life, but I hate the sinful nature inside me. I constantly think of Paul describing his inner struggle with not doing what he wants, etc., I don't see how, how we can have inner peace until our sinful nature is destroyed. That doesn't mean I try to inflict 
that on others, but isn't that the process of sanctification to be slowly transformed and to who we are supposed to be as believers? Now, I, I love the honesty there and the, and the willingness to acknowledge outwardly I may appear one way, inwardly things are not always what they appear to be. And that's so, so much of our Christian life, I think sometimes is so trying to mold and modify the external to look a certain way so that everyone perceives us a certain way. And in many cases, the inner is so dramatically opposite to it. And the only way to advance spiritually, the only way to move forward, I think one of the key elements of sanctification is not only a, a willingness to acknowledge what's going on the inside, but being willing, but being able and willing to discuss and openly let that be known. I know we're like, no, 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 no. You keep that secret. No, we've got to have people that we can say, look, inwardly, it, there's not a lot of peace. There is turmoil and there's conflict. And I, I think that we can all acknowledge that we have some struggles with that. So I, I really appreciate the uh, the person uh, sending that. It was very convicting and challenging because if that person's willing to be that open and honest with what's going on within them, then I need to be that open and honest with what is going on within me. And hopefully that will challenge everyone else to do the same. So are you ready? Thomas Akempis, chapter three, book two, a good, peaceable man. Let's start back at the beginning of the chapter. We made it into, we pretty much finished the first major paragraph, but we're going to read it again, and then that will, that will help us transition into the second one. All right, here we go. A good, peaceable man. Keep yourself first in peace, and then you shall be able to pacify others. So if you're going to pacify others, if you're going to bring peace to others, if you're you're going to be a peacemaker in a sense, you have to keep yourself in peace. There has to be an, some, internally, there needs to be a sense of peace, an absence of, of conflict internally. Now, I don't know if we can ever truly experience that, but I do think it's very important to realize that sometimes our ability to bring peace externally is greatly dependent upon the presence of peace internally. If we want to bring peace externally, then we need to focus on establishing that peace internally. I think there's, there's some very important points there, right? A peaceable man does more good than he who is well learned. Now, according to Thomas Kempis, you can be, you can be the most knowledgeable person in the world but it is the peaceable man that does the most good. Now, we in no way, shape, or form should diminish the importance of being learned. We should never diminish the importance of learning, of growing in our knowledge, but it is something to consider of what value are we if we have all the knowledge in the world but we're not peaceable inside. Does the lack of peace internally destroy the benefit of that knowledge externally? If we have all the knowledge in the world, how does a lack of internal peace hurt 
that knowledge from being beneficial. Some, something to think about, something to consider. A passionate man turns even good into evil and easily believes evil. Now, I talked about this where you're, you're, you're passionate. You have a lot of emotion and zeal and internally. Sometimes you can take everything and that, that emotion where it, can, where it is good, where it can be a strength in some cases, can also be very detrimental and hurt many things. And I think it's something to consider. And we talked about that. A good, peaceable man turns all things to good. He who is well in peace is not suspicious of any. But he who is discontented and troubled is tossed with diverse suspicions. In other words, the idea here is if you lack internal peace, you have a tendency to project that, that internal conflict that internal disturbance, that internal being tossed to and fro internally, you project that out on everyone else. You're not at peace with yourself. You're not content with yourself. So you project that on on everyone else. So you see everyone else as not being peaceable or being suspect, or it just causes you to view everyone else through the lens of the lack of peace internally, if, if that makes sense. He is neither quiet himself, nor suffers others to be quiet. He often speaks that which he ought not to speak and omits that which he would, would more expedient for him to speak. He considers what others are bound to do and neglects that which he is bound to do himself. I I think the way to understand this, and you've probably witnessed this, sometimes in your church, sometimes people in your family, sometimes people you work with. They seem to be those individuals who just always is just stirring things up. They just seem to be, they bring in turbulence. They bring in a storm. Wherever they are, there's conflict, there's gossip, there's slander. There's, there's, just, there's just bad things happen. And what you have to realize is the reason they bring so much disturbance around themselves is because there is a disturbance inside of themselves. Sometimes you have people like, what are you, why, why are you telling people that? Why are you sharing that? Why are you talking about that? What are you doing? They'll say things they shouldn't say, omit things that could be very helpful. It's almost like they are going to say or omit what to say in order to bring about the most turbulence and disturbance and chaos as they possibly can. You got to make sure you don't get caught up in that disturbance. But what you really need to do is try to, you know, hopefully help those people realize, you know, you're all of this, these storms that you cause externally, there's something going on inside of you that we need, (laughs) that you need to help get resolved. All right. I think that's very important. Now that brings us to where we stopped. Here we go. First, therefore, be zealous over yourself, and then you may justly be zealous toward your neighbor. Let all of your zeal, let all of your passion be about focusing on yourself, your sin, your shortcomings, your, your need for growth. Focus on yourself. 
not on everyone else. You get, a, you, well, that person, look at their marriage, look at their kids, look at what they're doing. Oh, I got to go tell everyone what that person did. I got to worry about everyone else's sin. I got to make sure I broadcast everyone's. Hey, how about you focus on yourself? Make that same passion and zeal about looking in the mirror instead of looking out the window. Be more passionate about looking inward than looking outward. And it's easy to worry. It's always easy to focus on everyone else. It's always easy to focus on everyone else. Focus on yourself. Focus on yourself. that's, That's a lesson for all of us. Now, you know how to excuse and color your own deeds, but you are not willing to receive the excuses of others. Now, let's not, we're very good at coloring our own deeds. We're good at excusing and coloring our own deeds. When it comes to our own actions, we can kind of color it in a way where we don't, it doesn't come across that we, well, it wasn't as bad as everyone thinks it was. We, we try to color it in a way where it doesn't make us look as bad. It makes us look better than we really are. We're good at excusing and coloring our own deeds. We are good at that. We're great at that. We're probably experts in that. Even when we're confessing our wrong to someone, we will still confess it in a way that still makes us, that puts us in the best light that we can be. Even even when we're confessing what we're doing wrong, we still color it and, and, and almost build into it an excuse. And sometimes, and we just have to realize we do that all the time, but here's the problem. While we excuse and color our own deeds, look what Thomas Akempis says. We are, we, we are not willing to receive the excuses of others. We're not willing to color and excuse anyone else's deeds. We're not willing to look to give anyone else the benefit of the doubt. We're just like, oh, I heard what they did. Boom, I'm going to tell everyone else. And then I'm going to think condemning thoughts about them. Now, listen, if it were more just that you should accuse yourself and excuse your brother, if you will be born with all, bear also with another. Thomas Akempis is saying that the policy should be that you accuse yourself and excuse others. Accuse yourself and excuse others. That, that's something you may want to write down and something to try to put into practice. It's not always easy to do. But we, we always seem to think that we are better than we really are. We excuse, we color, and then everyone else, we see the, we see the best in ourselves and we see the worst in others. Maybe we should learn to see the worst in ourselves and the best in others. In fact, what we have a tendency to do is someone can live their life for 40 years and then make a clear, horrible mistake, a clear, horrible sin, shouldn't be excused, that has to be confronted, but we have a tendency then to see that person only in light of their failure. We see the worst in that person, not the best of that person. But we want everyone else to see the best in us, not the worst in us. We need to see the worst in ourselves and the best in others. I'm not saying excuse sin. I'm not saying turn a blind eye to it. I'm saying there's a right way to see it, a right way to confront it, 
a right way to condemn it and a right way to restore it and a right way to move on. There's, there's got to be some ability uh, to move on after that. So th- those are all important things. Now, let's continue. I, w- I want to at least finish this chapter. Behold, how far off you are from true love and humility. When you realize that you see the worst in everyone else, when you realize you won't accept anyone else's excuse, when you realize that it's always about, you know, you see the best in yourself, you excuse yourself, you color yourself, you're, you're, you're zealous over everyone else's problems, but not over your own problems. When you realize all of this about yourself, you should behold how far off you are from true love and humility. You're lacking humility and you're lacking true love for everyone else. Which now, okay, now behold how far off you are from true love and humility, which know not how to be angry with any or to be moved with indignation, but only against its own self. It is no great matter to associate with the good and gentle, for this is naturally pleasing to all and everyone willing to enjoy and and everyone willing enjoys peace and love those best to agree with him. But to be able to live peaceably with hard and perverse or undisciplined persons is a great grace and is exceedingly commendable and manly deed. All right, so let's work through this. There's a lot going on here. All right. When we are worried about everybody else, we excuse ourselves while we condemn everyone else. When that's the way we, when we're not willing to, uh, when we're always willing to excuse ourselves and accuse others instead of ac- accusing ourselves and excusing others, when we realize this all about us, we need to realize how far off we are from true love and humility, which know not how to be angry with any or to be moved with indignation, all right? But only against its own self. In other words, what we should realize and what we should come to know is that we should we should learn to know how to be angry. Um, we, uh, what we should really learn here is to to be only against its own self. We should we should be moved with indignation against ourselves. We should be moved with anger against ourselves, not against everyone else. Right? If we have true humility, true love for others, we should we should have that indignation, that condemnation should be. Vo- should be pointed towards self. Now, here we go. Now, listen carefully what he's going to say here. It is no great matter to associate with the good and gentle. He's saying it's no big deal if you associate yourself with people who are good, with people who are gentle, with people who are pleasant. It's no big deal. Don't pride yourself in it. Don't say, woo, look at me. I'm so wonderful and great. Look at all these wonderful people I hang out with. He's saying it's no big deal. Listen. For this is naturally pleasing to all. It's naturally pleasing to hang out with people who are pleasing to you. There's nothing special about that. You're not doing anything great. You're hanging out with people that are pleasing to you and you're pleasing to them. So everyone's happy. Everyone wins. It's a win-win situation to, to borrow that catchphrase. Now listen. But to be peace, to be able. Now here's the key. But to be able to live peaceably with hard and perverse or undisciplined persons is a great grace 
and an exceedingly commendable and manly deed. Are you able to live peaceably with hard, perverse, undisciplined people? Thomas Akempis seems to be arguing that if we're truly at peace inwardly, then we can hang out. We can associate ourselves with hard, perverse, undisciplined persons and do so peaceably because the internal peace inside of us is so great. We can be around these people that are so undisciplined, so perverse, and so hard, and there still be a peaceful situation because our inward peace overwhelms the situation. Now, that is a convicting concept. I'm not sure I have ever accomplished that. I have a tendency that if someone is, let me, how can I say this and, and try to say this as openly and honest as I can, but I'm, people are going to get a bad idea, uh, a bad, <laughs> I'm, uh, people are going to think badly of me, but that's okay. We have to be open and honest here. My my approach and, and, and I know this is going to sound bad, but I'm just going to just, this is the way it's going to be. My approach to other people is pretty much this. I don't need other people. I know that sounds arrogant, but please hear what I'm trying to say. In other words, I'm not one of those who feel like, oh, I need people, right? I can go to a movie by myself. Doesn't bother me. I can go to a concert by myself. Doesn't bother me. I can go to any entertainment event by myself. Movie theater. I can go to a restaurant. I can go anywhere completely by myself and be perfectly okay, right? In other words, I don't, I don't have this codependent thing that I need people. I need to hang around people. I need, it, it doesn't, I don't have that, right? In other words, I'm pretty self-sufficient in, in the sense that I, I can just be, be by myself and for the most part, be content. For the most part, I can be content. I'm not saying always, but I'm saying this is a general part of my kind of my psychological makeup, my emotional makeup is it's just like, okay, fine. You know, like if, if the group is going that way and I don't want it and the group is doing what I don't want to do, I don't care. I'll just, well, you go, I'll, I'll, I'll go by myself. If everyone's going right and I don't want to go right, I don't care. I don't feel like, well, I got to hang out with the people. I got, I don't care. I don't care. I just don't care. Right. So, um, so my take is, oh, well, that person's hard. That person's undisciplined. That person's perverse. Just okay, I, whatever. I don't. I know. I don't need. I don't need to hang around them. Now, one, that's not a very ministerial perspective, right? Because sometimes it's the people who are sick. It's the people who, who. It's the people who sick who need the doctor. It's the people who sick who need the medicine. It's the sinners that we need to be around. So I, I, I just have a tendency. Well, if it, if it becomes unpleasant for me or difficult for me, then I'm just gonna go off by myself. I don't have the, now, so that, that's my weakness. It's just like, well, that person's just difficult. I just don't need them. I just go on with my own life. Now, other people, when they see people who are perverse, hard, or undisciplined, they almost view those people as some kind of threat to their own spirituality. Well, if I get around them, then I'm going to become perverse. And because some people are just greatly influenced, like if they're around someone who talks a certain way, does a certain thing, they feel like they have to go along with it because if they don't, well, then, well, that they won't have a friend or whatever. They, they just feel some, 
some people are just prone to peer pressure, right? So some people, I don't want to be around the hard, undisciplined, perverse person because it could hurt me spiritually. I'm more like, well, if it's going to make the situation unpleasant, I don't have time for that. I'll just hang out by myself. Others are like, no, I, you know, I, I want this person to be my friend, but I, I can't be around them because I'm afraid that they're going to hurt me spiritually. So, so everyone approaches these situations very different. What Thomas Akempis is saying that in spite of the, these people's behavior, in spite of their words, their attitudes, or their actions, we should be able to live peaceably with them. Because if, and if we can do that, that's a great grace and it's exceedingly commendable and a manly deed. It's really commendable when you can be around those kinds of people and you can live peaceably with them in a sense that you can be around them and benefit them, minister to them, you, you, and, and without it causing you all kinds of disruption or problems. Some people just can't do that for whatever reason. Is it because of a lack of peace inwardly? Is it because of fear? Is it because, is it because of selfish, selfishness? Mine is just selfishness. Look, look, if you, you want to do that, I don't want to do that. And I don't care about, I'll just go do what I want to do. I, I, don't, I don't care what anybody else wants to do. I know it's a selfish mentality that I have. I have a selfish mentality. But it, it is a very interesting concept that we should be able to live peaceably with hard and perverse and undisciplined persons. It's a great grace and exceedingly commendable and, and manly deed. How good are you at living peaceably with people who are hard, perverse, and undisciplined? How, how, how good are you? What, what, and, and Thomas Akempis wants us to look at the fact that it may be because we're not at peace internally, and, and maybe we're not. He goes on to say, some, some there are who keep themselves in peace and are in peace also with others. And there are some who neither are in peace themselves nor leave others in peace. They are troublesome to others, but always more troublesome to themselves. And there are some who keep themselves in peace and study to bring others unto peace. So some people are not at peace and they bring trouble to everyone else. Others are at peace and they bring that peace to everyone else. There are some who keep themselves in peace and then study to bring others unto peace. Do you bring peace, calm to a situation or do you bring everything opposite to it? I can't say that I always bring peace to any situation. I can't. I can't say I, I'm very good at that. Last paragraph. Nevertheless, our whole peace in this miserable life consists rather and humble sufferance than and not feeling adversities. Now, this, this is, I know that sounds wordy, but listen to what he is saying. In this miserable life, he acknowledges how difficult life can be. In this miserable life, where there's all problems and difficulties and pain and disease and death and suffering and sin and failure and backbiting and gossip and slander and bearing a false witness and all, and all the horrible things that go on in this life. In this life, whole peace consists, if you want whole peace in this miserable life, it consists in humble sufferance and humble suffering that while you suffer, you do so with grave, great humility. 
That is where whole peace can be found. Not, okay, it's going to be found rather, it's going to be found in humble sufferance rather than in not feeling adversities. See, what we think is, okay, if I don't feel any adversities, then I can be at peace. He's like, no, that's not the way it works. True peace doesn't come because it's just a removal of external adversities. True peace is something internally. And the way you can have true peace is to approach the miseries of life with humility and suffering. A great humility in it. Not thinking you deserve anything better than to suffer. Having great humility that you don't know everything, that you're not just so many different areas where humility comes into play here. He goes on to say, whoever knows best how to suffer will keep the greatest peace. It is the person who knows how to suffer who will have the greatest peace. It's not necessarily the person who finds a way to avoid suffering. It's the one who knows how to suffer. How well do you know how to suffer? Do you know how to suffer from a biblical perspective or do you know how to suffer like everyone else in the world? Everyone suffers. So everyone has their ways of dealing with suffering. Is your way biblical or is it fleshly and worldly? That man is conqueror of himself and Lord of the world, the friend of Christ and heir of heaven. The person who truly knows how to suffer. That man is conqueror of himself. You conquer yourself. You're Lord of the world. You're the friend of the Christ and heir of heaven. When it says Lord of the world, in other words, you are, in a sense, you're not, you're not allowing life or the world to control you. You're living in such a way that you are not being moved and controlled by the world. That's what he means there. And then why well, that's the end of the chapter. That's the end of the chapter. I, I, whenever I get to an end to a chapter of the imitation of Christ, I almost always stop the same way. Go, well, uh, that's it. Cause you're almost like, wait, 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 don't stop. Don't, don't Thomas Akempis. What are you doing? What are you doing? And remember, I, I, I truly feel this again. Thomas Akempis was in a monastery. And I think a lot of this was written in the monastery, almost for the people in the monastery. So we always have to interpret it and understand it that way. But it just feels like, cause in the monastery, they have very, you know, very, strict schedule. So at specific times you're reading or specific time you're doing spiritual writing, whatever the case may be. And it's almost like he's right. Okay. Spiritual writing time is over. Stop. And then he's got to go to the next duty, responsibility, prayer time, church, church service, whatever they're doing in the monastery. And it just seems like sometimes it just stops and you're like, uh, Oh, wait, wait. And then, then just the next chapter starts almost like when he comes back to have spiritual time again, he picks up a new thought picks up a new concept. So sometimes you're like, well, could you could you do a little bit more unpacking of being a peaceable man? Because I don't know if I completely understand it. Now, here's always the thing with Thomas Akempis. Let me just challenge you. Remember, not everything he says is infallible. Not everything he says we have to agree with. But it should give us great pause to at least consider what it means to have true inward peace. And that inward peace has a profound impact on how we engage and deal with others. Are we truly peaceable? And I think it's very important to understand that, that peace is something that we can have, and it's not the 
the keeping us away from adversity. It's that humility and suffering, that humility and suffering, which is connected to that internal peace. Okay, good question. Okay, someone who's listening just said, wow, wish you'd give an example of how to suffer with humility. Perhaps it's seen in Job. Uh, that, that is absolutely a great, a great question. And it's, it's, it's kind of what, every time I get to the end of one of these chapters by Thomas Akempis, I'm like, come on, can you? And sometimes there's no explanation. There's no example. There's no illustration. It's just like, here's the, it's almost like, here's the principle now you go figure it out. And that's, again, that's one of the reasons I, I wanted this book during all the craziness going on in the culture, because you can read a little bit of this and then you can sit around just thinking about it going, okay, so what does humility and suffering or, or, or to suffer with humility or humble suffering, what exactly does it look like? Job, I think, is obviously the go-to. Job is a, a go-to. You could think of uh, Joseph. I mean, look at all the things that happened to him. His brothers turn on him. He's sold into slavery, ends up in prison, falsely accused. I mean, just, and many of those cases, they just, you don't hear any complaining, grumble. Now, Job, we, at least Job acknowledges the book. of One of the good things about the book of Job is it acknowledges that you can suffer with humility and at the same time express your pain and your frustration. And that's not sinful, but you're willing to accept it. You're willing, I think hum, humble suffering is I'm willing to accept the good that comes from uh, the good things that come from the Lord. And I'm also willing to accept with humility, the horrible things that come. And then, and whether it, he, he's giving me good or whether I'm receiving bad, blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm going to praise him. There's, there's humility and suffering. I think is first it's continuing to serve God and move forward, even when it doesn't make any sense. Um, and I think it's even in the midst of expressing frustration, it's an acknowledgement that I'm willing to receive whatever God brings into my life, good or bad. But I think the the, the only way, it's, it's almost like circular reasoning going on in Thomas Akempis' mind, right? I think, and and you can you can argue whether you agree or disagree, it almost seems... That in Thomas Kempis's mind, he didn't really articulate this, but I think it now that I'm that I'm thinking about the chapter even again, the internal peace, the very thing that produces the humility and suffering. But at the same time, humility and suffering is connected to having that peace. It's almost like one, you know, which comes first. They both are both are related. I'm not going to be able to have, I'm not going to have humility and suffering if I don't have internal peace inwardly. If I'm tossed to and fro inwardly, then all I'm, whenever more suffering comes in, it just creates a bigger storm, a bigger storm, more agitation, more frustration. And it just, it just all, it, it spins out of control. So I've got to have that inward peace that he's talking. I got to be that peaceable person, which then leads to that. And humility is very important for that internal peace. But then that leads to the right kind of suffering, which then brings peace. It's like, which comes first? I, I, I think there's something there. Again, I, I wish it's one of those t- things that 
if you read any modern day book, they would like they would write a chapter like that, and then the next chapter would be trying to explain it or examples or illustrations. Thomas Kempis does not do that. And we have to understand how it was written. Again, he's just imagine him alone in, a, in, a, in his room in the monastery, sitting at one of those little desks or tables, if you've ever seen, you know, uh, pictures from monasteries, little small, small rooms. And they got a little table there with their, their books for their time of spiritual reading and a notebook. And it's just, he's just writing these thoughts, almost like in a journal, like it just, you know, just like a stream of consciousness. And he just writes it out and it just when it's time to stop, he stops. And then next thing you know, you're on to something completely different. He's not even really, he's just throwing out these thoughts about these concepts. And then we have to take them and really work on them and really think them through to see how biblical they are. But clearly, um, this idea of inward peace, having it, seems to be the, the major theme in all of this. And that it impacts all of these different areas and how we suffer, how we deal with others, our ability to live with people who are undisciplined and perverse. It deals with so much. And I, and I just, I wish I had a better grasp, honestly, of how to possess that inward peace, right? We talk about peace with God. We talked about the peace of God. The Bible sometimes doesn't, you know, we can we can think of a lot of scriptures. It's a, it's a put it this way: it's a subject that definitely probably needs more taking apart. But I'll just leave it with where we have it for now. But yeah, yeah, it's some some yeah. There, there's so much here, and and maybe he'll come back to it. Um, yeah, I almost want to read the chapter again. A good peaceable man, chapter three. Please read it. Um, there's, there's one section there. I wish I had my other translation, but I don't have my other translation. I don't know where my other translation is. I'm looking at my table of, of stacks of books, and I've got all kinds of books all over the place. <laughs> but I don't have my other translation of it because I think there's a phrase there I wanted to have a better understanding of, but we'll, we'll stop right there. All right, that completes chapter three, book two. Thomas Kempis, The Imitation of Christ. I truly believe right now, with everything going crazy in the culture again, and I don't know what's going on. I mean, so much is happening. Um, we we, we got to have something we can put our mind on that's spiritual. So, because without that true spiritual foundation and anchor, right? That And that's where we can establish an inward peace is by keeping our focus on God, I think it's in the book of Isaiah where it says that uh, God keeps us in perfect peace or he keeps the person whose mind is stayed on him in perfect peace. You can look up that scripture reference. I believe it's in the book of Isaiah. Um, And I think that's what we need right now. It's once again, we're going to be in 2022. We're going to have midterm elections. That's going to be chaotic and crazy. Almost all the experts are saying the next eight weeks minimum it's going to be utter chaos with Omicron. It's going to be nuts. We have so many issues going on, and we're going to and we can find ourselves a lack of peace internally. That can lead to a lack of peace externally, and we create more problems than we bring good. And the only way to get around all of that is we've got to put our focus on the things of God, the Bible study exercises, reading Thomas the Kempis, everything else we're trying to do. It really is more important than ever. Because we're going to find people all around us 
who are being tossed to and fro. They're, they're, they're filled with anxiety, loneliness, discouragement, depression, worry, all kinds of emotional upheaval. There's been study after study coming out about all of the emotional upheaval people have been through. And the, and Christians need to be that that just, without even saying a word, they can sense some kind of internal peace inside of us. And we can then point them to the Prince of Peace. We can point them to the one who where peace is found, and that is in Christ. It's in his word. It's putting our focus on him. And that that's hopefully things like the imitation of Christ and other things we do can, can be a part of that. I, I hope that was helpful. I hope that was helpful. Every time I finish one of these chapters, I'm like, well, I don't know if I did a very good job there, but there's, it. I mean, there is no, there's no secret in some time and understanding some of this. You're just left with a lot of, of speculation, but that's the whole point. Now you're supposed to meditate on it. So there you have it. All right. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. That concludes that chapter of The Imitation of Christ. Hopefully we'll get, hopefully all of this week, we're going to really try to work on the book uh, throughout this week. I I think that's the plan. And uh, well, I'm going to end this live broadcast. I'll be back. I'm going to be here for, I don't know how many more hours. I'm going to be here for the next few hours. And uh, we're going to introduce this week's Bible study exercise. Uh, I I think we did a decent job finishing up Isaiah 9 today. I hope we did. And uh, yeah, we got a lot of other things. Oh, we're going to have to do a special Bible study exercise this week. Yeah, we, I got, I got a writing, I think from, is it from the 1700s or 1800s? Maybe the 1600s. Uh, I f- found this like little booklet and I was like, whoa, this raises lots of questions. So we, we may, we, we, there's a lot we need to do this week. So we'll try to get to everything here. Just, well, keep tuning in and uh, we'll, we'll make a plan for uh, this coming week and just see what we can uh, cover. And thank you for listening as always. And uh, well, everyone have a a great day. I'll be back on the air here shortly. God bless.